A little over a week ago, I woke up on a Saturday morning and I couldn't even get out of bed. My lower back was so locked up and in pain that I really couldn't sit up. And it took four days to get to the chiropractor. And once I got there, he diagnosed me with a herniated, herniated disc in my lower back. I was hopeful that it would be a quick fix. And he did make it better with some treatment. But as a chiropractor often does, he said that the medicines my body needs are particular exercises. He gave me exercises and stretches that would realign and reorder my spinal disc back into place so that it would no longer aggravate the nerves that were running up and down my back. In our passage this morning, Jesus diagnoses a sickness. And the medicines that he gives are in the form of exercises. These are patterns and ways of living that if we routinely engage them, these will align and reorder us in order to remedy that sickness. Look with me at Luke 12, verse 13, and together we're going to see the sickness that Jesus points out. Our passage begins with a question from someone in the crowd, and by the way that Luke is writing here, it seems that this is an interjection. It's almost as if Jesus was teaching and this man bursts through and interrupts whatever is happening. The question he asks Jesus is to resolve a financial dispute between him and his brother. For whatever reason, his brother doesn't want to give him the inheritance that he thinks he is due, or part of the inheritance that he thinks he is due. And this kind of question, it wouldn't have surprised Jesus. The way the Jewish people would resolve such disputes in the ancient Near East was that they would go to religious leaders of the day, so Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the rabbis, those who understood the law of God, and the people would ask them to referee the situation or adjudicate it. And this is partially how the Pharisees came to lord their knowledge over people. They saw themselves as the ultimate authority, the ones with all the answers, and they lived into that identity 110%. But Jesus' response is curious because it's the exact opposite of how we would anticipate a Pharisee to respond to this situation. A Pharisee would have loved to interject himself into this situation. But Jesus, he purposefully avoids it. And that's because he sees the sickness. I'm sure that many of you have heard of strength, strength finders. Uh, if you haven't, a strength finder is a test that identifies your top strengths and then it gives you direction to help you maximize your professional life. And one of the first things that Gabe did when I got here to begin my pastoral residency was he asked me to give him my top five strengths. And that way he could better understand the things that give me life and then I could also hone in on those gifts while I'm here. That's awesome. That's what a great boss does. And as I read this situation, because I've studied the 34 uh, gifts, these strengths, the 34 strengths that Gallup's uh, records, I couldn't help but think that Jesus is using the restorative strength. And people that have the restorative strength, they have this characteristic where they can look at a situation and they can identify the problem quickly. They look through the chaos and they see the problem. That's what Jesus does. He immediately recognizes that this problem is not just a legal problem. The core of this problem is a problem of the heart. Jesus, in his brilliance, diagnoses the situation as a sickness of the heart, and he says in verse 15, 
take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. This can also be translated as greediness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. For Jesus, the real life of a person, the value of a person, the worth of the person, the success of that person is not dependent on their possessions or their wealth. And actually to become over-dependent on possessions and wealth accumulation is on a heart level dangerous. Why does Jesus say this? Why is this Jesus's reality? Well, in the parable of the rich fool, Jesus tells us that greed is dangerous because it aims towards the wrong things in life. By aiming towards the wrong things, this trajectory causes us to ignore what really matters, which is becoming and being rich towards God. In other words, greed is not what you have or even how much you have, but it's what has you. Greed is not what we have, it's what has us. It's a sickness that aligns our heart towards selfishness. It reorders our loves in a way that doesn't value our neighbors or put us in a posture of generosity. And therefore, it's not consistent with the way of Jesus. For the rest of our time, I want to engage two simple remedies for greed. Earlier, I called them exercises because they're concrete and they're pragmatic actions that help us treat the sickness that might be within us and guide us towards a life of caring for our neighbors and a life of generosity. The first exercise is guarding your heart. It's guarding your heart. And for a moment, I want to take you back to the year 1799 and to the house of George Washington at Mount Vernon. And in June of 1799, this month, George Washington wrote a letter to John Trumbull, who is an American revolutionary and painter, and Trumbull actually, actually painted the most famous full self-portrait of Washington. And in this letter, Washington expresses concerns to Trumbull about the complacency of the United States in a potential war with France. And he writes a sentence that is often seen as central to war strategy. And of course, Washington was a brilliant strategist, and he says this, he says, we need to make them believe, them being the other congregational representatives from other states, we need to make them believe that offensive operations oftentimes is the surest, if not the only means of defense. And you might have caught it, but Jesus says the same thing in our passage regarding greed. He says, be on guard against covetousness. That word in the original language, it's military language. It's to take an active position of defense. So Jesus is telling us to stand guard, don't be complacent, and don't get caught flat-footed. It's to take an active position of defense. So if we're wanting to remedy greed within our hearts, then we should first guard our hearts. That's the first exercise that we engage in. And if we take George Washington's words seriously, the best defense is actually offense. I think the best defense against greed is really simple. It's just starting to be generous. The first step is not staying on the sidelines. It's about starting to become generous with our time, our talent, and our treasure. And this, what I'm about to say, sounds philosophical, but sometimes doing precedes being. It's in the action of doing generous things 
that we're changed and we're formed into the kind of person who is generous. And just as George Washington was describing the State of the Union to John Trumbull in that letter in 1799, let me encourage you to take a look at the State of the Union of your own heart. Others can help you do that, but really, it has to be your willingness to partner with Jesus and allow for him to look together with you. Greed is not what we have. It's not in our possessions, but it's what has us. It's a sickness that has us. And so we ourselves, we have to ask ourselves diagnostic questions. What has my heart? What do I need to be guarding my heart from? Guarding our heart is important, but it isn't the only remedy that Jesus gives us for the sickness of greed. In verses 16 and 21, Jesus also encourages us to widen our vision. He tells the story of a man whose land produces so many goods that his barns aren't big enough to store everything. So instead of giving those excess goods away to others, he builds bigger barns so he can say to himself, I've made it. The rest of my life, I'm going to relax. I'm going to eat what I want. I'm going to drink what I want. I'm going to enjoy what I've made for myself with my own hands. But the story takes a tragic turn. The man dies. And God enters into the story and he speaks to the man himself. And I like how the message version translates these last two verses, verses 20 and 21. It says this, Just then God showed up and he said, Fool, tonight you die. And your barn full of goods, who gets it? That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. I'm convinced that this man's error, the reason that God calls him a fool, a fool and rebukes him, was because of his narrowness of vision. And his vision was short-sighted in two different ways. First, he wasn't looking far enough ahead. This man placed his ambition in wealth, in comfort, in enjoyment, and in pleasure. And so he created a situation for himself where he could indulge in whatever he wanted to for the rest of his life and neglect any concern for God. When he died suddenly, he realized his wealth wasn't with him. And the irony that Jesus points out is that he ended up with no wealth at all. He was neither rich towards God, and he also couldn't take his wealth past the grave. If our vision, our horizon line, is focused on the material nature of life without concern for God, then our vision is short-sighted like the rich fool. This parable is a plea from Jesus to widen our vision, to look at the horizon line in light of eternity. True wealth is about growing rich towards God, and God has a different economy. And one of the ways that we grow rich towards God is by understanding the second way that this man's vision was narrow. His vision wasn't wide enough to see the people who were around him. He couldn't see what the author David Dark calls in his book, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, what David Dark calls the inescapable network of mutuality. These are the relationships and the environment that enables us to live our lives. We live in an inescapable network of mutuality, and so did the rich fool. What the parable of the rich fool teaches us is that greed is selfishness, 
No one, including the rich fool, makes his wealth or lives his life on his own and in a vacuum. So becoming rich towards God begins by just acknowledging the fact that we live in a network of relationships. We live in a neighborhood. We live in an economy, a land. We live within a system. We live within a church. Then being rich towards God in part looks like serving that network, caring for that network, giving to that network. And this is all in light of God's heart for us to serve our neighbors as we ourselves would want to be served. I think this is the right place to add that the greed that Jesus is naming in our passage today, it's not just a personal sickness of the heart, but it's also a systemic and structural sickness as well. Our theology of greed must be big enough to say that greed is not just a personal sickness, it's also structural. Right now, our country is in social turmoil because of the racism and implicit bias that has existed against black people in our country for 400 years since the first slave ship touched down in 1619. African-American novelist Alice Walker, she wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Color Purple. She stated back in 2016 in an article in Salon Magazine that racism is really just a mask for greed. And this is a controversial statement, I know. And yet, I think it should pause us, it's cause us to pause and ask ourselves, what really was the motivator for having slaves work cotton fields in our country? What really motivated J.C. Nichols, the country club plaza developer just a mile down the road, to pursue redlining that produced huge inequities and social and economic opportunities for black and brown communities? Those inequities still exist today. Our theology of greed is not just personal, it's also structural. And when we think about becoming rich towards God, it means cultivating a life that is, has a widened vision of looking beyond ourselves and caring for others as we ourselves would want to be cared for. It's about seeing others as made in the image of God, as having the Imago Dei. If we widen our vision, then we won't miss in our periphery the inescapable network of relationships that we live in. We'll learn to be unselfish. And two, if we widen our vision in this cultural moment, and I'm speaking right now to the white evangelical moderates like myself and others in our community, if we widen our vision, we won't miss in our periphery the realities of our black brothers and sisters in this country. Being rich towards God starts by living with a widened vision, one where we have both eternity in mind and we also have our neighbors in focus as well. So by guarding our hearts and widening our vision, we are reordering our loves away from the sickness of greed and into the way of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but these two exercises, guarding your heart and widening your vision, they sound strikingly similar to what Jesus teaches in the great commandment in Matthew 22. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. See, there's great synthesis between the New Testament and even the Old Testament. The words of Jesus that are in this passage are not just a warning against greed. It's an exhortation to guide us into a life lived in the way of Jesus, which is 
a life that practices generosity and a life that cares for our neighbors and a life too that has eternity in our horizon line. As we close our time together, I just want to say again that there are many ways that we can be generous. We can be generous with our time, talent, and treasure. And that creates a lot of variables. But just as a few examples of this generosity, I've seen it so beautifully lived in action at our downtown campus. In our family here, I've seen our Care Portal team come alongside people in need of outside of our church and help them for months on end, scraping up resources and finding time in the margins of their schedules to help. I've seen community groups pass out care packages to neighbors during quarantine. I've seen women's ministries spend their time and resources to support the teachers at Crossroads Academy. I've seen the men of H3 send care packages to the medical workers of our campus who are on the front lines of COVID-19. I've seen a five-campus multi-site church partner together for a purchase of a new downtown building so that our downtown family can live strategically on mission in Kansas City for the long haul. I really am so proud to be a part of this generous family. And my encouragement to you all is, to us, is to just keep going in that way, to press on. This is a time in our city and in our country where generosity continues to be needed. And maybe it's even needed now more than in the last couple decades. It was just weeks ago where people were filling their own storehouses with goods out of fear of what might happen because of COVID-19. Let's continue to be a part of a different kind of community. A community that gives and doesn't hoard. A community that empties itself, that gives of itself in order that we might be filled with God's presence and become rich towards God. And may we be a community that looks out for our neighbors, knowing that they bear the image of our Father and that he calls us to serve them out of love. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it guides us, it convicts us through your Holy Spirit, it encourages us. I pray, Lord, that you would widen our vision to see the horizon line in light of eternity. Lord, widen our vision to see the people who are around us. And Lord, help us to guide our hearts through your spirit so that we might be able to live into a life that practices generosity. Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. We pray these things in the name of of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now we've come to the time in our service where we engage the Lord's Supper. And this itself is a kind of exercise that helps us remember what Jesus' death and resurrection has accomplished for us. His love on the cross, his giving of himself, enables us through his spirit to give of ourselves and to love others as he loved us. So let me read into our hearing the words of institution. They come from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 26. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As you take communion, let me remind you that these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving.